0: This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good? Sounds great.
0: All right, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Chris Adelhart of Parion Ives... Let me talk to you about axe wax this is our sponsor axe wax is an all-natural food safe wax for your axe for your handles your wood your steel your boots your leather whatever you whatever you want honestly and if you go to um axewax.us You put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your whole order. So get a couple pucks of Axe Wax, go get a t-shirt, whatever, and you're going to appreciate it because it's great. A lot of guys use it. A lot of people use it. I just put it on a pile of walnut-handled knives. I love this stuff. I actually sent a puck to a customer of mine who was thrilled with it. Go get yourself some Axe Wax. Thanks again, Axe Wax. My guest today is a fascinating and mysterious person, Chris Adelhart. Of Pariah knives is the guy I hold to a very high level in terms of process when it comes to his knives He does a lot of Japanese style tantos, and I don't think I said it right, but fine And he, he's got this There's is a precision and a beauty to the style to his knives plus he's the king of the belt finish Chris, <laughs> how are you?
1: I'm doing good Jeff Have, uh, Thanks for having me dude
0: you are um you're a phantom you're a phantom because i i look i try to spend a while trying to find any little bit of tidbit so it's not just like you can't go on a podcast and say and someone says tell us about yourself because you're going to give me the bullshit you're going to give me like the instagram <laughs> i need to know a little bit more so i can kind of we can get past all the nonsense but you're hard to find now what do you mean by that did you just google my name I Googled your name. I Googled Pariah knives. I Googled it. I went kind of above and beyond. Usually you find an article, you know, like, you know, I know that you're in Erie, Pennsylvania for now. We've got to talk Mm -hmm. about your move. I know you're moving right now, but it's like, usually there'll be, you know, these newspapers and magazines, they need guys like you because you actually provide a really interesting story, but there's nothing.
1: I don't understand. (laughs) Tell me why. I'm not actually sure, Jeff. Um, My career in Knives has been going on now for about seven years. Um, And I've been on a couple of podcasts, very small podcasts, a couple of local uh, podcasts here. And I think most of the people locally here kind of know who I am and what I'm doing. But I'm kind of a low profile guy. You know, I I don't really care for the spotlight too much. Um, And I'm not particularly good at talking about myself either.
0: All right. Well, that's fine. we'll, we'll, We'll work it out. I just noticed today that you're moving. You're in Erie, Pennsylvania. You're starting to break down your shop. Where are
1: you going? I am moving to Austin, Texas in the middle of June this year. Wow. Are you excited? I couldn't be more excited, honestly.
0: Why are you moving?
1: Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I've been kind of in limbo here in Erie for the last few years, and I've had the desire to move out of my small town um, for even longer than that. Um, it's kind of a one-horse town, to, to, for lack of a better way of explaining it. And it is beautiful here. I love Erie, Pennsylvania, don't get me wrong. And Pennsylvania in general is a gorgeous state. Um, but I've lived here for most of my life, and I'm 35, and I'd like to start somewhere new uh, and begin a new chapter in my life. Um, what, and Austin what? is great. I've spent a little bit of time there. Um Actually, my move to Austin is going to save me a considerable amount on my overhead every month, hmm. um, which is very surprising. I know because I think Erie, Pennsylvania, may be the cheapest place in the United States to live.
0: Huh? I'm surprised. So, yeah. what what made you pick uh, Austin? I know well, that it's got like a very big art scene, and I know that it's a very it's a much it's a much different type of. City, from what I understand, than the rest of the state of Texas. But what 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 it draws you to Austin?
1: It is very progressive there. Um, well, the catalyst really for my move is my girlfriend uh, Andrea De Leon, uh, who lives down in Austin, and um, we've had a lot of talks recently about um, pushing some collaborative efforts and uh, doing some projects together. And her influence in me reconnecting with my sculptural work and trying to implement them into my knife designs and my knife career has been very paramount in that choice for me to move down there.
0: I did not know that she was your girlfriend.
1: Oh, well, that's kind of a newer thing.
0: Well, I, got, I just got her T-shirt, the, the Dre Stroyer. I got her T-shirt... She was on Knife Talk with uh, Holly. Yeah. Holly Loftus did a great interview with her. Yeah. She's an extraordinarily talented glassblower and
1: knife maker. She's a renaissance woman. She's got skills all over the board.
0: Holy cow. Well, good for you. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Look at you. Look at you going to Texas to follow your heart. I couldn't
1: live any other way.
0: Ah, my man. So let's just head back a little bit because one, I, you know your, your work in general... I feel like there's this incredible... There's an incredible theme. There's this... there's. I'm trying to f- use the correct words because when I look at your work, you do Japanese-style knives, tantos, and I think you do some swords and stuff. Mm-hmm. You do these kind of very... Um, you do these Persian daggers and the, these oni knives. There's They're all very stylized and there's a deliberacy to the work that has a real... Uh, I want to use the right word. I want, it's it's a real appreciation for the heritage for where they come from.
1: That's a great way to say it. I'm um, trying.
0: I'm try, you know, Because I have such a huge respect for you. Not just because of the work, but like some of the process you do. How did you get involved with this kind of... And I know that you also... I want to get into the martial arts. I know you do... I think you do kendo. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. How did you get involved with this whole style? Well... <sighs> I'd like to start at the beginning, but I feel like I have to go a little bit farther back than that. Let's do it. Um, As a kid, my mom read me The Hobbit when I was like a very young baby. And that influence in fantasy has always been a driving force in my creativity, not just as a sculptural artist um, or as a carpenter, but also now as a knife maker uh, and a martial artist, too which I'm a very unconventional martial artist. I don't really go to a school or practice um, in the academic sense. Um, But when I was a kid, the only thing I wanted to do was go out in the woods and whack my friends with swords. And that really is what's transformed my drive to become a knife maker. Um, When I started this, I just wanted to do it as a hobby because I loved... Uh, bladed weapons and edged weapons and training with them. Um, but I never expected it to take off and to become a career for me. Uh, mm. And f- On the contrary, it was actually a kind of a therapy for me because um, I was working as a ceramics teacher, sculptural teacher at the local Erie Art Museum. I did that for about six years. Um, and I was also a Finnish carpenter at the same time. So a lot of my tool knowledge and my uh, craft comes from my career as a carpenter, um, but I was working as a teacher and a carpenter during that time, just trying to make ends meet. And I needed something to like, bring me back to my roots and break that cycle. And so my roommate at the time, uh, Mikey Yapel, said, yo, you should start making knives. And I said, well, that sounds pretty fun, you know? And at that time, all I had was an extension cord from my kitchen into my no electric garage. And I made my first hundred knives in that garage that way. Wow. Yeah.
0: So listening to your roommate, how did your, what did your, your roommate just didn't say, why don't you make knives? And you were like, yeah, that sounds <laughs> a good idea. I mean, it's kind of, it's not like, I, I, I want to get into the pottery because I I really feel like there's a connection between the, the ceramics and, and the way you make your knives. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how did you, how did you think Mikey might be right? You know?
1: Well, I mean, at that time, too, I was training in kinjutsu, um, which is like a more general sense of sword fighting. Not Kendo is a more uh, academic sport in kinjutsu. But at the time, I was using martial arts as a form of exercise in a way to um, cultivate myself. And when he suggested knife making, I was already modding knives. And when I was in college, I went to the University of Edinburgh uh, for fine arts. I graduated with a sculpture and ceramics degree. Where's um, that? That's here locally to me. Okay. I'm um, going to make sure cuz some of our listeners are just like,
0: "Guy came from Scotland. Nice."
1: <laughs> Actually, you they know? named Edinburgh Edinburgh because it had the same weather as Edinburgh, Scotland. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is that's totally Pennsylvania right there. Yeah, 100%. That's a Pennsylvania move, right?
1: <laughs> that's how it is.
0: So, you were you were at when you got into ceramic. Now, I got to I'm going to I'm going to hop back to you 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 graduated with a degree in art and ceramics hmm what were you kind of when you kind of graduated what were you working on what was your what was the things that you were enjoying to do
1: at the end of my uh, college career my undergrad career I was making um, gallery sculptural work a lot of mixed media a lot of collage ceramics and uh, other materials um, I took a lot of different art classes when I was in school and uh, metal, fab, and jewelry making was a huge focus for me, too, during that mm. time. And so those things kind of really led to my work as a sculptural artist, more than just a ceramic artist. Um, but I can send you some pictures, and I will send you some pictures of my okay. initial work. That would be great. If you look back at in my Instagram, periodically I do post uh, flashback shots of my old ceramic work. Um, but few and far in between, I haven't even made a sculpture in probably the last five years, six years. Hmm. It used to be a good vehicle for my language, because art is a language in the end. Um, it yes. used to be a good vernacular for my language, but as I grew older, I kind of grew out of that, and I kind of developed knives into the language of me today. I guess that's the best way what I is could
0: this say for- it. See, just knowing a few little things, like I said, you're you're kind of hard to. you there's not a lot going on in terms of like you're you're very like I call you you're a wraith as far I was just like <laughs> this guy is a total wraith. He's like there's like I don't even know if he's out there or not. I don't even there's a lot of Chris Adelscotts out uh, Chris Adelhart's out there and and um you know none of them look like you. So when I, when I, when I look at, when I think about ceramics in general, I always usually think about like throwing pots and stuff like that. Right. You know, and it's very, very, it's very, very finesse based. You know, there's, there's a, there's, you can't really put a, a a, you know, you don't really put calipers on throwing a pot. You know, it's not something that you can calculate, you know, very, very closely at the level that, you know, you are in, in school and stuff. And I would imagine that there's a big similarity between a lot of the thought processes behind ceramics and throwing pots and martial arts and the way you do your belt grinding finishes where it's really very tactical, tactile tactile and finesse-based. You think that's true?
1: I think that's 100% true. Um, What you're talking about is a more inductive sense of reasoning where you can know one thing and know a thousand things. Um, the discipline it takes to make sure your pots don't blow up in the kiln. Um, you actually do use calipers in, uh, throwing pots Hmm. just to add that, but the discipline it takes in the chemistry and the understanding behind, um, what you're doing in those different disciplines is absolutely inductive with all of them. Especially in the sense of the science, specifically speaking between ceramics and knife making, um, I'm firing my ceramics in a kiln. You know, I was repairing kilns, building kilns, learning that process. Um, I use the same kilns that I used in ceramics for my knives. Really? Yeah.
0: Because there is that similarity between these long soaks, and there is. I I didn't even dawn on me that. There are, I would imagine that there are, with the lack of a better word, uh, critical temperatures for ceramics. I mean, you're trying to hit a specific temperature mm-hmm. to transform the, the the clay, right?
1: Yeah, it's all about temperature, really. Hmm. But with ceramics, you're going a little bit higher than most knives. Um, really? Yeah, like low fire ceramics is 1800 to 2400 degrees. Um, really? Roughly. Yeah, and then that's only, like, cone 6 is, I think, 24-something degrees. And porcelain is even higher than that. That's cone 10 and above. And you're getting closer and closer to that 3,000 mark at that point.
0: I really had no idea. This is totally news to me. Yeah. I always thought you just let them dry out, and then once they dry out, you stick them in a kiln at, like, you know, 400 degrees, and then they just kind of extra, extra dry out. I didn't realize that they were getting <laughs> up to that high. I, I have no idea. Yeah. I'm, oh, st- yeah. I'm stupefied.
1: Well, it's like anything else. There's a general sense of things, and it goes off into infinity. You know, you can get so specific and so technical with ceramics. Um, there's a lot of different glaze techniques that require very specific temperatures for very specific times, um, and all that is just the science behind it. Because
0: I try to explain, when I'm talking to people about knife making, people have this idea that it's just like grabbing a piece of steel hitting it with a hammer a couple of times and slapping a handle mm-hmm. on there is there is so much more science and waiting that it, the, a lot of the romance is gone in terms of the way people normally think about how knives are made and i would i just can only imagine that if you're getting involved in ceramics and you're you there it's i've always thought that ceramics and blacksmithing are very similar because you yeah. know most plasticine clays move just like um move just like steel when it's hot there is a, a, a real there's that change between uh putting from when you put the pot in and i'm imagining it. i one of the things chris is i i have i enjoy my ignorance so then i can ask people questions and maybe i'll be less ignorant after I hear the answer. Sure. So I would imagine that being able to kind of make something out of clay and then sticking it in the kiln, you have this real temperature difference. It's so much like knife making that it was probably a very easy transition for you. I had no idea that clay goes past 1,500 degrees or 2,000 degrees. That was a stunner to me. I'm, stu- I'm stupefied.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's just the beginning, too. I mean... um, it's like just another discipline with an infinite amount of growth that you can cultivate in it, you know, just like you're knife not, making.
0: But you're not really quenching clay. You're, you're allowing them – are they air drying in the – are they – they get up to a certain – how does it work? Tell me how it works. It, I don't understand.
1: It's very similar to glass in that clay is mostly silica anyway. Um, so your cooling period, um, like when you anneal steel, takes a very long time. Um, and controlling that cooling process really lets the molecular structure of the material put, go into the right f- formation that it needs to be. Mm. Um, and you know about how thermal shock can destroy a blade and create a fracture line and snap a blade. It's the same thing with glass or ceramics, really.
0: So you're bringing it up to a certain temperature, soaking it, and then letting it cool at a specific rate in your... In your uh in
1: your kiln. Sure. Specific to the clay you're using and the desired finish and the glaze that you're using.
0: So when your roommate says to you you should make knives and you're looking into it you're just like okay I got the kiln, (laughs) I got this, I know how to do this, this seems pretty easy. Was it a very easy transition for you or?
1: Well actually I didn't really start to implement my influence in ceramics to the knives until a little bit later. To be honest, I built my own forge out of kiln bricks and furnace cement and used map gas torches to do most of my early knife work. Hmm. Um, it wasn't until later that I decided hey, dummy, use the skills that you have and improve upon your process.
0: How long did it take till you realized you could use your ceramics kilns? Did you Hi, have buddy. your own ceramics kilns?
1: I didn't at the time, um, but I was still teaching at Clay Space, so I had access to some of their kilns, Um, but I eventually bought my first even heat shortly after that. It was about a year, I think, after I started making knives that I got a real kiln.
0: In your mind, were you thinking to yourself, I should probably get a kiln big enough that I could throw a couple cups in there, too? (laughs) that That would be my move. My move would be like, I need to maximize. Maybe I need to get something that I can also I can make knives, but then I can throw in a teacup tea every so often.
1: It's not a bad idea, although with ceramics, contamination is a huge issue, so oh. I would never cross over. Because if you get a piece of steel in your clay, that's not going to shrink at the same rate as the clay, and it'll definitely cause issues.
0: Why is this—please, well, t- just out of curiosity, why does it, how much does the, shri- does the clay shrink, and why does it shrink? Is it because of the moisture?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, clay is only clay because of water. And it makes up a great percentage of that clay. Now, every clay body is a little bit different, but you're talking 18 to 20% shrinkage rate on most clays. Hmm. Which is a huge amount.
0: That's huge.
1: Yeah. Jeez. That's why the temperature uh, controlling how fast and how slow things are are really important.
0: Hmm. So when you were doing the teaching... What were you
1: teaching? Sculpture? Or? I was teaching sculpture, basically. Yeah. Hmm. And did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. See, my problem with teaching was is that I'm a better artist than I am a teacher. So I would do these, like, 10-week classes for intro to sculpture or hand-building. And they'd end up lasting, like, 22 weeks. <laughs> You know, because my students would get these really ambitious projects and I would encourage them on and then the classes would end. And I'd be like, well, you know, you just keep coming. You know, you can still finish your stuff. And that went on for six years. And at at one point I had to stop and realize that two years into that teaching, there were people there from the first intro class still showing up (laughs) and still making stuff.
0: But but it but it it does make you better give you a better understanding of what you're
1: doing i hundred oh, percent it does one hundred percent
0: and at the same time it, was this the same time you started doing kenjutsu?
1: i mean yeah actually that's yeah that falls in line on the on the timeline pretty accurately actually yeah what, around,
0: where where did you how did you decide to do that
1: uh, I had a buddy actually growing up who turned me on to it um, my buddy Lucas and, uh, he was a black belt in Taekwondo and started to train with a bow which is a wooden training sword. And, um, he really turned me onto that. And I spent a couple of summers growing up learning what he had learned from master park, who is a martial artist here in Erie. And, um, yeah, that was really a big push for me to pursue it because the, the subtle benefits that I got from just that limited time with Luke, um, really fueled my direction for where Hmm. I wanted to go.
0: In what regards?
1: Um, Well, it just taught me a lot about myself, you know. Um, Martial arts is very um, vague and metaphoric in its practicality. Um, The true true benefit of most martial arts can't be seen in the confines of any given martial art. So the things that you learn while you're training yourself you can really apply to life in general or like ceramics or knife making.
0: How did how did martial arts change the way you looked at your work as a sculptor?
1: It made me question ego a little bit more seriously and really delve into the nature of what I was doing and asks myself a little bit more questions that challenged me uh, rather than Verified my perspective.
0: That is very interesting because I struggle with being a sculptor my entire life to the point where now, 47, I have a completely different opinion about my work and who I am as a sculptor versus when I was 27. Well, and sure. I, and I, believe, I personally believe that the ego is extraordinarily important to making a sculpture because this is when you're an artist and you're a sculptor unfortunately you have to have you have to harness a little bit of that narcissism in order to get your work out there otherwise it's like it, you're doing it you, you have to understand that it's like this vanity project and you're you have to understand it and accept it otherwise you know I just feel like it's very important to be you know very conscious of the fact that it is a vanity project, and I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I I think that it becomes difficult, and I, I'm one, I'm interested in in terms of what you said ego is because you also made a set, I don't think you made a series of knives, or you named a knife called the Ego Hunter. Mm-hmm. Is there a relationship between that and, and, and how you feel about making sculpture?
1: For sure. Um, I mean, your idea of vanity, too, in terms of art, because like I said earlier, art is a type of language, right? You make it as a means to communicate something.
0: right?
1: So it's just like writing a word on a piece of paper and handing it to someone. The only difference with art is it's not written in a tongue that's known as a vernacular. So the vanity that you're talking about and the ego that you're talking about that you prescribe to your art only exists in your perspective because the moment that you release that out becomes whatever the viewer thinks it is.
0: With the exception of the fact that it's always going to be um, an expression that you, the artist, have put out there. And ultimately, you know, good or bad, that's a form of, you know, narcissism. Which I have no problem with. But it, I, I'm very honest about the fact. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's a bad thing or not. But I just, I worry about who I am. and 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 I also, honestly... I feel like I need, personally, I need a little bit of pizzazz in the stuff that I do anyway. So I, there's a little <laughs> bit of dr- drama. There's a little bit of drama, but there's a little bit of, you know, showmanship involved in the things that I do anyway. So mm-hmm. my, my struggles and myself, are, I, I also don't take myself terribly seriously, but it is one of those things where I get, you know, you ha- making ceramics and making art and being, I would imagine, martial arts, you have a serious degree of honesty that you have to come to. Because in martial arts, it's a struggle between whether or not you do what you're supposed to do correctly and things work out, or you get, you know, knocked over the head and, you know, all of a sudden (laughs) things don't go your way. You know, there's an honesty to that, you know?
1: It definitely forces you to, uh, to change because the moment you make a mistake, there are consequences, direct consequences for sure.
0: Sure. When I was a kid, I wanted to... I found in the Yellow Pages, when they had Yellow Pages in Manhattan, they, my parents said... I said to my parents, I want to do some martial arts. And they said, well, where do you want to go? And I found a, new, a ninja place in Manhattan. There was a, in the Yellow Pages, there was a picture of a guy in pajamas. And he was like... In the, <laughs> it was unbelievable. <laughs> and I go to bring this Yellow Pages to my mom. I'm like, this is where I want to go. And she's like... 34th and 9th what are you talking about what is this guy and the guy's got like he's in this position and he's wearing like the ninja outfit he's got like a blowgun coming out of his mouth it's in the yellow pages, Manhattan yellow pages and he's got like ninja stars it looks so fucking cool and all I can think of is this is what I want to do I want to be like I want to be Michael Dudikoff American Ninja this is what I want and she says you're not doing that and they found me this taekwondo place off Madison Avenue these guys hated me as soon as I walked in, and I, was, I couldn't last... I don't think I lasted a month just because they just were so hateful towards me. They hated you? Hateful is the you. wrong word. Not hated me. They were very difficult with me. Very difficult with me. And Do I was you think like, I just part didn't... of that
1: was because you were young and they were trying to show you like a tough love type of... Uh...
0: I, I'm very... I, at the time, I was very willing I was very willing. I hated authority, but I was more afraid of authority. So I was very compliant. I would be a very, at the time, I would have been an excellent student um, because I was as compliant. They told me I got to knot the knot. Like, I was practicing tying the knot for nights. I was having terrible, I was like afraid that if I show up and I tie the knot and I don't do it right, the guy's going to come over and he's going to tie it for me. (laughs) It was like, it was a totally like, and am I clean? Do I smell bad? It was like everything was very much along the lines. And they were like, the, I was the youngest guy in the class, and the other guys were big men. And I was just this child. And I just felt like they were trying to get rid of me anyway. And it was like, it was not the experience that I wanted. And, you know, part of it was like the ego, you know? Mm. I guess. Or I was too young
1: maybe or just the demographic that you walked into didn't support your demographic for whatever reason.
0: And then, now that I think about it, we sent my kid when she was very young to a strip mall karate place around here. And like they they mostly are and in my this area and they were, the whole thing was the guy was very much along the lines of bullying is bad, no bullying and there's no bullying allowed. You're zero tolerance for bullying. And she'd go into the classes and she had the little dragon, uh, you know, outfit on. And she, every time she'd come, we'd pick her up. She'd come out of the, running out of the dojo with a piece of paper saying, we'd like you to buy this. And it was like, it was like they were giving these kids like sales things for the parents every single time after class. And then she, we had her go to, and we, I was paying out the no, out the nose per month. But then every time it was just like, you got to buy this shirt. You got to buy that thing and mm-hmm. join this and join. It was like so much. And then she did this, this summer camp there and she got bullied in the fucking class. It was crazy. <laughs> she got bullied in the school. And she was just like, I don't want to go back to camp. I'm like, why not? She's like, they're bullying me. I'm like, the whole thing is this supposed to be about bullying. I said, do you want me to talk to the guy? And she goes, "No, I don't want you to talk to the guy." I say, "You sure? I'll talk to the guy." And when I went to see the guy, and this is before I didn't tell the guy, I didn't say every child's
1: nightmare to have their parents confront. I would never
0: listen. I would never do that to my kid just because I was like, I would be mortified too. But the guy was this dude, and he would he drove around in a Hummer. And he had this, like, under his, like, outfit, his gi, I guess it would. He'd have these, like, the sh- like shirts for his car, like Hummer, the Hummer. And I could I could just see him, like, you know, walking very carefully and walking very, you know, taught, the way he would speak and he would talk about his degrees and everything like that. And then you could see under his shirt, it was, like, for, for, like the Hummer H2 or something. Like that. I was just, like, the whole thing was so bizarre. <laughs> but I do remember her being bullied and being, like, you know, that's very, uh... I don't know. My whole martial arts experience wasn't ever any good.
1: Yeah. I mean, people are people wherever you go, you know.
0: But when did you start, like, I mean, how did you think to say, I'm going to start using the wooden swords? Were we using wooden swords? or?
1: I mean, yeah, we trained with bokens in the beginning. Um, but to touch back to my childhood, I was doing that from the age of, like, 7 to 18 anyway. So my familiarity with using those things was already ingrained in me, just in my play as a kid. Right. Um, There is something
0: very... very, I'm sorry. You you, you go. You go. I was just saying that there is something very... I I love the idea that you were kind of embracing the things that you were doing as a child and kind of like delivering past that, you know, because a lot of times it doesn't happen. I mean, I remember watching... uh, When I was a kid, Saturdays and Sundays was uh, you watch Kung Fu. You know, watch you Mm -hmm. know know, Saturday afternoon drive through, and then we hit each other in the head with broomsticks. You know, it's like
1: (laughs) and make nunchucks with like ropes and like peeps and pipes. Nunchucks. I got horrible nunchuck stories. Go ahead,
0: let's hear it. (laughs) I I hurt myself
1: once with a pair of nunchucks for years, for years. I, what do you mean? You hurt yourself one time and it hurt for years? Yeah, for years. What I happened? I whacked myself in the elbow, hit my funny bone. I must have cracked it or something. But I'm a kind of guy that just, like, tapes up his wounds and keeps going, which is I do not advocate for anyone else. But, so, yeah, I had this horrible pain in my elbow for, like, two friggin' years. Like, the wind would blow by and I'd feel it on my elbow underneath my coat. and Just, like, cringe. It was horrible. Do you think
0: you broke something?
1: I mean, I don't know. I mean my arm didn't swell up wasn't purple and I functioned fine but deep inside it like it did something to me
0: so then you with it was it we were you just playing around with it and it just whacked you in the elbow
1: yeah I tried to train with them for a little bit and uh, then I whacked myself in the fucking elbow and that was and it that was for, it yeah I
0: you know what they could have been something I actually had a uh, table saw Something uh, a couple of years ago I was cutting with a table saw and a little piece came back and hit me in the thumb and for like Two years I had pain in my thumb to the point where even I can't really strike very well because it hurts. Yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised it didn't swell up either, but you never know.
1: You could damage the bone maybe on an internal level that doesn't cause any inflammation but still causes you pain.
0: I, I don't understand. You know what? I'm so risk adverse in terms of like human struggle. That I just don't want I don't want it. I don't want pains. I'm actually like I'm actually like since my thirties, I've been focusing on like being fit healthier in terms of the choices that I make. And like being like I had the opportunity to do uh, jujitsu like yeah. ten years ago. And I found that there's a Gracie jujitsu place in Austin. And I sent a message to I found out about the sent a message to the guy. And the place was a dump. I mean, it was, like, a, it was a base off of Henzo Gracie, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, it was, like, it was weird. It was, like, super sketchy. And the dude was, like, as soon as I sent a message, it was the guy was, like, all over me to, like, sign up. And when are you coming over? And when are you going to... And then when I found out about the uh, ringworm and, you know, and, Jesus. and, the, and the MRSA <laughs> that you can get and the, you know, the like, the all the all all sorts of, like, stuff, my wife was just, like... MRSA. You can get MRSA from this. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, you just clean yourself off. It's just like ringworm. You're gonna get. You're gonna, you know, things are gonna fall off on you. So it, it's got like, you know, that's, that's a lot that, of those risk. Days are over. Well, I mean, I guess obviously risk comes with reward, and I'm sure that a lot of jujitsu people are, are just like, yeah, well, you just, you know, you you take some, uh, you know, you, you take some vitamins, and you just wash off with some antibacterial soap, you'll be fine.
1: <laughs> so it's just like one more
0: thing you have to do.
1: That's true. Well, when you so, come into physical contact with people and they're sweaty, like you always run into some kind of risk of transference, I guess.
0: I saw I used to watch a lot of UFC fights. I, I still follow what's going on in mixed martial arts mm-hmm. because it's fascinating. But like I remember, I don't know if you follow mixed martial arts at all a little bit. But there's a guy by the name of Jake Shields. Okay. And he a number of years ago, he was an incredible fighter. He was, he, he's out of the Diaz camp, he's just a California guy, he was a Strikeforce champion, I, he was a force champion, a UFC champion, he was a journeyman, he got some sort of, like, I don't know if it was MRSA, or, 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 or I don't know what, I don't know what, the, I don't know, if there's another type of, like, skin bacteria, and it was, like, a gaping, giant disgusting mound and it was Ugh. like oh my god this is what you can ha- this is what's gonna happen i never had anything like that when i was when i wrestled in junior high but it was like one of those things you want to stay away from
1: i mean have you ever gone to a ymca uh you know what now that you mention it
0: my wife and i were actually talking about this when we first moved in together 1996 we had an apartment in manhattan and on the, on, we had an awesome apartment on 14th street and first avenue and we were, it was like 900 bucks a month. It was awesome. It was right next, it was in, in the East Village, right next to, China, not too far from Chinatown, a little Italy, West Village, it was perfect. And we just had very, very little money. She was going to art, uh, she was going to nursing school and I was just, you know, doing sculpture and you know, being an assistant to all these artists. And we found this place called Asher Levy. And it was, a y, it was a city-run YMCA off of 23rd Street. And we were just talking about it because we were talking about public pools. My kid's about to be a lifeguard. And Asher Levy was like a city-run YMCA. And we went to, to, you know, it was like nothing to to be a member. It was like 25 mm-hmm. bucks a month or something like that. And we went into the pool, and the pool was so chlorinated oh, that yeah. we like... I mean it was like we were like slugs being with salt on top. We were just like everything was coming. It was this get out and you start to kind of like everything's burning. And and we found out later that when they released people from Rikers Island, they get $25 and they go to and they all go to Asher Levy. So we were going to like the halfway oh my house. Oh god. The halfway house YMCA for like the the New York City penal you know, you know, all the jails and stuff. So, yeah, that's my experience. We don't do YMCA's anymore. <laughs>
1: well, that's a pretty good reason not to, I guess.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, you, this water was like, you get out of it and everything started to kind of like, you crackle a little bit. I mean, it's like you're just drying out in the air. It was
1: bizarre. That's so it could kill any potential uh, bacterial yeah. threat.
0: Everything. You you like, if you open your eyes in, in that water, it was just like, I mean, it was like, it was like swimming in bleach and it was just <laughs> everything about it was just like, but they were like, they knew, they knew the kind of people who were going to that pool. And then all of a sudden after the third day, we, we, we get, we get, we walk home, we get home and we're just like. I don't feel so good. I feel like shit, don't you? And she's like, "Yeah." Like, Everything hurts. The cuts. <laughs> you got a cut on you. You're just like
1: done. You're like you're
0: swimming in this goddamn Ashley Levy pool. We're gonna die in this place. So yeah, no, we don't do gyms anymore.
1: Yeah, it's I like keep, you're basically you're etching yourself in chlorine. After I
0: do, I do have one last, the last place I was ever, and I'll, and I'll bring it back. The last place I was ever a member of a gym to. No, the second to last place I was a member of a gym, in the New York Sports Club in manhattan and when i had a job i was working at bakery and i would go to there was a new york sports club new york sports club not too far so and they had a they had a they had showers and so what i would go early in the morning or late in the afternoon and then i could you know work out and then i would take a take a shower there were these dudes in the locker room that would just stand around with their dicks out and like yeah that's a big thing dude it was like they, but it wasn't just like the whoopsie, my towel fell. It was like if, it turns out that there, it was like they had a big problem with like these guys like in their cruising, and it was like I uh. didn't even dawn on me until until all of a sudden every time I was there, no matter what time I came, if this dude was in the bathroom in the in the men's room. He had his leg up on a on a bench. He had, he had he had a dick hanging out. He's scrubbing away. I don't. I mean, never saw the guy work out one time. But he's any time I'm getting that gym morning, noon, or night. He is like, he's got the dick out. He's got. He's like, and he is like scrubbing and he's like very manicured. If you know what I'm saying. And it was just like, this is a bad place. And then we started getting notes in our lockers. We started getting notes in our lockers saying there's been a lot of reports of inappropriate behavior in the lock, men's locker room that's got to stop and there's going to be no zero, zero tolerance policy. And I'm just like, this dude is just cruising in the men's room. I can't be involved in this place. This is so weird. So that's my other story I'm not going to go back to gyms for.
1: Well, that's, that's a big, uh, that's a normal. I don't know about the cruising aspect, but the cock runway is a huge thing in those this, public gyms.
0: I'll tell you one last one. When I was younger... I don't like gyms. This is the I don't like gyms episode. When I was younger, <laughs> my mother dragged me to her sports, her gym, which was one of the first... It was, I guess it must have been in the early 80s. She dragged me to this gym, and this was... I don't remember the name of this gym. It was a very famous gym. Um, God, I wish I would remember. And she had a trainer, and... Don Imus, the radio guy, was on the treadmill. he That's where he used to go. And he, he probably coked out of his mind, you know, on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the Stairmaster. And then I was in there one time. My mother got me the tr- her trainer. Her trainer wanted me to... Wanna, I guess my mom was a pain in the ass at the time. So he wanted to punish me. And he made me do... I mean, just... extra. I mean, I wasn't a big workout kid anyway. I did stuff at school. But he made me do everything like super hard and it got to the point where I started to throw up and then he's he 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 was asking me if I smoked marijuana and he wanted to get dirt on me to so he could break my mother's balls I don't know what it was it was such a strange experience he made me throw up and then I went to the bathroom to change cuz I was a fucking feeling like shit I was like dude you're you're killing me here I mean just he was just totally killing me and then the mayor Ed Koch at the time he was the former mayor at when I went into the gym he was naked he was just finished scrubbing his balls <laughs> and the mayor i was just like oh my god i'm just trying to change and there's mayor ed koch naked tr- scrubbing his old balls and it was just like i don't need this in my life i've never had a good experience in a gym did okay.
1: you say anything to him like it's no
0: you know his big thing his big expression which was the dumbest of all time i mean if you were to have if you were a mayor and you were to have an expression this is the one you don't pick. He used to say, how am I doing? Ooh. So every, if anyone see him, he would say, he's, eh, how am I doing? And it's just like, all I could think of is he's scrubbing his old balls. He's saggy as fuck. And I just want to say, you're not doing well. Let me just tell you, please, I feel sick, but you look terrible. You're not doing well at all.
1: Oh, man.
0: Back to you. Back to you. Less about my fuck. You, you, you put me down this bad road. You said, have you ever been to a YMCA And I told you three terrible Y I I did T- ask three you. Three terrible gym stories.
1: That's true. I did ask you.
0: Did you, when when you decided to do the kinjutsu, Mm -hmm. were you, did you go to a place to learn or did you get the, I mean, how do you go about doing it?
1: Well, it's actually kind of interesting studying with my buddy Luke. Um, You know, martial arts in itself is a study of the self and really you cultivate who you are on your own, even if you're training with somebody. Um, But the people that you train with are always a reward for you because they give you the opportunity to learn something. Um, So through the years, I've really learned through a couple of different people. And um, that's just the way that I approach it. There's lots of different ways that you can approach it. You can go and find a sifu or a master, and you can learn the more academic way. Um, But I've always kind of been a little bit of a black sheep. And I've always kind of done things my own way. Um, not out of spite or intelligence, just out of my own neuroses. Hmm. Um, but so I really approached it from an intellectual standpoint. And uh, the philosophy of martial arts is really what captivated me the most or the internal martial arts. And um, learning a little bit about the um, that aspect of it really kind of showed me that it was already part of who I was. Um, Because I'm a very self-analytical person. I'm always trying to figure out my own motivations and why I do what I do so that I can better myself in some regard, Mm -hmm. Um, which is essentially the whole premise of martial arts anyway. Is that why you named your knives Pariah Knives? Um yeah, I mean I named myself pariah knives because of that black sheep mentality. Yeah. Um I've always kinda pushed my own prerogative and because of when that would fir- oh sorry. No, you you can, go. you can go.
0: Please, no, please. I was interrupting you, please you were gonna say. <laughs> I was I just saying problem.
1: because I always kinda was a little bit of an outcast, um, it was really easy for me to come up with the word pariah knives. Um and what also, is the- What's Go that? Ahead.
0: I'm sorry once again. Also, I'm sorry. I have a uh, problem. I, <laughs> to the listener, I know I also who you are, the, Jeff Fader. <laughs> <laughs> I also make everyone turn the cameras off because it's better for the bandwidth. But at the same time, so we lose a lot of vocal. There's a lot. There's a lot of visual cues that I would normally have that I just don't have, and I apologize for interrupting.
1: It's okay. It's okay. Um, but what I was saying was is that I wanted a way to. Uh, You know, because growing up, being a little bit of a social outcast can be a hindrance to you. But I really kind of used it as a means to um, cultivate myself, for lack of a better Mm. way of saying it, and to kind of find a little bit of a strength in that solitude. Um, Mm. And so, yeah, Pariah Knives is, uh, is what I came up with.
0: But that, that, that is interesting, too, because it's very, very similar to most knife makers. It is a solitary business. you know. Yeah, make, sure. Being a maker in general. Being a maker in general. I mean, woodworkers, they all hang out in the same shops and stuff like that. But, like, <laughs> knife makers and stuff. I mean, maybe people, you know, you know, rent space together. But it is a solitary work. I mean, most of the listeners of this podcast, listeners of Knife Talk, they're listening on their, maybe it's their day off from work or at night or in the weekend or they're away from there and they're all alone. Mm -hmm. There is something to be said about that kind of mentality, and it's created this community of like-minded people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like going to college for a specific field of art, you know?
0: mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And when you first started to make knives, what were you making?
1: I was making little EDC bushcraft knives at first. Um just little 1095. I, I fell in love with the hamon because of the Japanese history with the uh, katana swords and how they use the tomahagana to make their swords. So, when I first started knife making, I was all about the Hamons. So, I was carbon steels forging little tiny blades in my garage and trying to get that perfect hamon. Hmm. Um, and that really was what made me fall in life with knife making in general was the, that glimpse into the science behind it and how integrated that was with my skill set and my studies in art um, that I already had under my belt
0: there is, has, I would think there is a similarity with the hormones not just because you're using clay or whatever, Satanite but there has to be a similarity with you know working with hormones and if you're listening and you don't know what a hormone is it's basically like you put when you're heat treating a knife you put some clay traditionally clay or satanite or furnace cement over the spine and what you're doing is you're insulating that part of the steel so when you're getting it up to critical temperature and you quench it the part that's coated in the clay doesn't uh, doesn't get to uh, martensitic state doesn't get as hard as the rest of it and when you finish everything off you get this hazy kind of line that makes this very beautiful it's beautiful but the spine ends up becoming soft. The blade and the bevel edge become hard, and you have this differential uh, heat treatment. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's very beautiful, but also very functional, depending on what kind of knife you're making.
0: But did you see? I mean, when you're doing when you're doing uh, ceramics, are you having situations like that where you're cooling things down at different rates, or is there a similarity or? In any yeah, case for here? sure.
1: I mean. Again, depending on like what type of clay you're using and your desired external finish um, or the glazes that you're, you're putting on your surfaces, they all require a very specific set of chemistry, just like how the different alloys of steel require a very specific set of chemistry to get that crystalline structure, and they're both crystalline structures actually, to form in the right way that you want it to. Um, and that science is already is already out there it 's just you learning what that means and how to apply it to what you 're doing but yeah it 's very have, inductive very inductive But It
0: must have been a very very easy transition for you because you already had the mindset of the knife making isn 't just about it's, for you I would think that there 's a huge part of the heat treatment being very very you were very um familiar with that concept of these heat treatments because of using
1: ceramics mm-hmm, yeah um and then just my experience with um carpentry and reading data sheets helped me really understand how to utilize that information and then then
0: you started to kind of progress into doing more kind of like tanto's and japanese style stuff or
1: yeah yeah i mean in the beginning those those compound grinds understanding the geometry of steel in terms of a knife or a blade it's it's complicated Um, I know a lot of people kind of shoot for an aesthetic, but there's something about most historical aesthetics that serves a purpose and has a reason. And um, you can make something look like something and it's not really going to function the way that it's intended. But if you really do your research and you understand why things are the way they are, there's a lot of trial and error and understanding behind some of those aesthetics. And to do them properly takes a lot of skill.
0: How did you, did you take any classes, or was it just research?
1: A lot of research. Um, I forged a couple of knives in college, uh, and that was, like, my real intro into knife making. Um, but the Internet, man, you can do anything today with the Internet. Um, hmm social media, I wouldn't be able to I know a lot of people that probably listen to this podcast are the same way Um, just probably as you are Jeff without social media that's primarily the reason why I'm not a a ceramic artist today and I'm a knife maker is because my sculptural career predates my integration into social media and were it to be different on that timeline I'm sure that my sculptures would have been probably at the forefront of what I'm doing today I
0: mean, I've said this to, I mean, if it wasn't for social media, I'd be, I would be, cur- I wouldn't be doing this. Because I, there's no way I could, you know, you could possibly, I could possibly make a business out of this otherwise. Right. It's I impossible. mean, you
1: probably sell knives all over the world like most of us do. Um, and especially me, I live in a town that I think we have like 200,000 people or something like that. Um, it's just not a sustainable market locally right. for most people.
0: So. When you, one of the things I, you know, I'm very intimidated by a lot. I I try to be very simple. I try to be very simple with the knife, knives that I make. And I'm also not, I've never been a big, um, I've never been a big tool person. Like I've never been someone who idolizes tools or looks Mm -hmm. at them. I've always been more along the lines of what you can do with tools. Like I like Mm -hmm. the final outcome when I was a sculptor. It wasn't about the equipment I was using, but it was what the final product was. So I never had a real true appreciation of what went into making tools and stuff. One of the things that intimidated me the most about Japanese style swords and knives and stuff like that is that there is, there's so many parts that are important and the fact that you have these... And I'm not going to pretend like I know the names of like the <laughs> guards. And the, I, that's the one thing. I, I refuse to pretend like I'm an... I resent the fact that I'm even considered an expert. And what I try not to do is I try not to pretend... I try. To, I make sure that I'm. I'm very clear that I pretend that I don't know. What I don't know, I don't know. And I'm perfectly happy learning about it. The parts involved in, you know, especially tantos and Japanese swords... I love when I look at your work and I look at Island Blacksmith and you have these takedown all Japanese swords, all the parts it's everything is very important that they're takedown, they're mm-hmm. takedown parts and each part has a name and each part has a significance and then you you start to realize that you have to focus on on all the parts and their their own significance and it, 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 all of a sudden you just realize if you're doing it correctly I would imagine you're honoring that culture as well.
1: Isn't that a beautiful metaphor, though, how all the little things add up to the, the big thing at the end? It's intimidating.
0: It's intimidating to a guy like me.
1: I understand that. Um, but what's nice is that we live in a more conventional time. Um, back when you're t- what we're talking about in the historical sense of that craftsmanship, one guy wasn't even doing it. You're talking about a whole village of people that were creating these things as a means for survival too so you'd have one guy who would just sharpen the blade you'd have one guy Mm. who just polished it you know and they were all masters in their different facets but together they made a tool that gave them their livelihood is is there some like it's almost, it
0: don't, it's almost as if, because, you know, you're talking about the jab, the blade, and then you have the handle part, and then you have the little thing, and then you have the the, the guard, and then you have the thing that, <laughs> yeah, <I'm> just, <laughs> I don't know, but, but but what, it seems to me like when you're able to take everything apart, it's almost like you're dressing the blade, and then you're undressing the blade, you know, it's almost like, there's it's clothing. It's clothing especially because of those Edo wraps, which I've I've been hammering you for years in regards to giving me a figuring out how to do those Edo wraps. That's where you, you take the shoelaces and then you cross them over and then you cross them back over and then you create these you know, diamonds.
1: Blasphemy. Yeah.
0: I mean I, listen, wouldn't you prefer wouldn't you prefer if I was just honest and and then I talked in a normal way, that I wasn't being pretentious, as if I I knew the correct pronunciation. No, I'm, I'm glad that you used it. I mean, I mean I mean I think I'm keeping it real. I don't know, and I'm willing to learn. But it seems as though, as opposed to like a kitchen knife or a Bowie knife or something where it's not a takedown, that it like the all the parts are like the clothing, like that you. It's a ceremonial clothing that the knife the the sword has to wear.
1: Well, technically, I mean I understand what you're saying, but all knives kind of follow that pattern in a sense that you've never had, have you ever had to redo a handle on a blade and grind the handle down back to the naked steel and then redress it?
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's not, but it seems like with the Japanese stuff, you just, you know, undo the laces and then you put all shit comes apart. You know, right. you hit that little pin in the middle, bingo, bango, bongo, <laughs> you know, it's, everything's off. You know, I'm not grinding the, I'm not like, you know, getting a, getting a, you know, like getting a razor knife out to cut the laces off.
1: Well, see, like I was saying a few seconds ago about it being more conventional, especially my methods, um, like mine aren't really takedown. I mean, you could take them down, but you'd have to get through a lot of different layers of resin to do it. And oh, I see. Uh, with the Tsukamaki or the wrapping of the handle... Um, in a more conventional sense today, a lot of them are soaked in resin, and I use a, a resin system to soak my Edo wraps, too. And what that does is makes that handle more uh, stationary, and you can't... I mean, it's one solid object when you're done. I,
0: I didn't... You know, I, I realized that I got a, I got a quiken. I call them, are they called quikens or quakens? Quaken. Quaken. I got you can quaken. say it however you
1: want. <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm be, Listen, Chris, I think that... I, th- I would hope that most of no one has ever said that I'm a know-it-all and it's just because I don't know shit and I, I would rather learn than than <laughs> and pretend than pretend oh yeah of course it's a quaking. of course qu- I was calling it a quacking for a while I was, I had all sorts of I did not know but I but re- I got one from Charlie Lionheart and he had used uh, some sort of epoxy on the mm-hmm. on the wrap, on the laces, on the shoelaces, for lack of a better term, <laughs> to keep them in place. And I thought, that's a real smart idea. But I was under the impression that, you know, Island Blacksmith is a perfect example. That guy, you know, yeah. like Island Blacksmith, he's yeah. traditional, 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 like he's wearing the ninja shoes. Yep. <laughs> he had the. He, I think the only thing that's not traditional, I got a pair of glasses on him. But other than that
1: he's got <laughs> His cell like a cell phone that he took the picture with probably
0: yeah, <laughs> I, he, he's unbelievable I got to get him on people have been telling me to get him on I'd love to get him on he's an interesting guy he's 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 built this traditional Japanese forge and he's got the Japanese style uh, forge and bevels uh, bellows and he's out you know, of the UK makes, right I think he's in I was under the impression that he's in um, I was under the impression that he was in uh, Pacific Northwest uh, of oh, okay. like, Canada. I think he's like I think he might be like Pacific Northwest Canada. What's that? Vancouver. I'm mm-hmm. part of me thinks it's like that, but I could be wrong. Yeah, but I'm not really sure either. He's he 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 does it to a point and I think that it's interesting. He does it to a point where his he makes glue with sap and he's t- he makes the brushes with bark and everything is very very I mean, it's, I don't, I mean, I'm just exaggerating, but, like... I made I my own
1: toothpaste you, once. I mean, it's the same kind of mentality, I guess. What,
0: what did you make it with?
1: Oh, baking soda and some oh. other jazz. Oh, that's, I mean, that's not really the same thing, is it, now, Chris? <laughs> no. I, mean,
0: it's, I mean, the little baking soda paste <laughs> is not really... I made my own toothpaste. You just, you know, mix some baking soda and water and put it in your mouth. But this dude, like, he he's... I think I'm fat. I love these guys, especially like Ilya uh, Slavic Smith too. Mm-hmm. These guys, they're doing this traditional, traditional stuff, and they're honoring it. And I believe that you are as well. But you have this nuance to your work, and one of the nuances that I'm like that I hold to the highest of regards is the way you finish your blades, because the belt finish on your knives, I- you and Will Morrison are my like. You guys are my like high water marks in regards to what I'm looking oh. for. What I'm looking for in my work, and I'm no, I'm no good. I mean, I heard actually heard Will Morrison once said that um, a belt finish is harder than a hand sanded finish, and I agree because you can you have a little bit more. You have a little bit more time. You have a little bit more work you can do. You can put into it, but at the same time, when you're doing a belt finish, you. are... It's there's a damp, there's a I would imagine it's very performative because mm-hmm. there's no, with yours, there just seems like there's no room for error.
1: And that's the truth, too, about it, is that um, it's at a much higher speed than hand finishing. I've actually saved some of my poor grinds by hand sanding, so I will agree with his um, his statement uh, from first-hand experience. Um, but, yeah, I mean... A lot of the time it's here goes the grind, if I don't pull it off I'm gonna have to start over from scratch. And that's like a whole new everything starting over and heat treating and the whole new and I've scrapped a lot of blades over the years doing it that way. Um but it's like anything else, you know. We all have our own tendencies and different strengths and for me my inductive reasoning with martial arts lets me do the grinding a little bit better, I would say. Um Just how you move your body, understanding the mechanics of your body. But, yeah, I mean, I sweat bullets every time I finish a blade.
0: (laughs) I asked you one time, are you holding your breath when you're grinding and you're like, I'm doing a lot more than that? (laughs) 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 I got a a feeling you're clenching the old, you know what? And I I got a feeling because there's such a level of perfection. I just find it hard to believe. It's just like it's stunning, and I would imagine especially with the work that you do, there's these moments of like the failure to success rate is a hair. Mm -hmm. It's just a razor thin margin to be unacceptable.
1: And, And really, for the most part, it's determined by me if I'm okay with the way it looks because it doesn't matter how perfect perceivably it is. The closer you get to that, point where you think it's dead on the more errors show up and a lot of people who handstand will say the same thing the higher grit you go the more the imperfections come out it's same in a uh, metaphoric sense too the closer you get to the idea of perfection the more apparent all those other imperfections will be Um, and that's true with your form how you grind the knife the way the knife looks at the end the overall geometry of the blade it's all the same thing really
0: but how did, you, how did you come to the point that, I mean, traditional tantos and, and a lot of those things are hand-sanded. Like, that's like mm-hmm, that's yeah. one of the things. You became so proficient in it. And even for, I was looking back towards, you know, your Persian-style knives. And we're going to talk about those Oni knives, and we're going to talk about all that stuff. How did you decide, well, I'm going to be a belt finish guy?
1: I mean, really, it was just the exposure to the conventional tools of knife-making, um, the way that 2 by 72 belt grinders work, the overall estet- aesthetic of the texture that a, a, belt, a sanded, uh, belt sanded finish gives is attractive to me. If, you've seen, if you look closely at some of my guards on some of my knives, I'll leave a 180 zirconia finish on the surface and it gives this beautiful um, line texture. Which I, I, for one, fall in love with. Some people might say it's not finished unless it's 800 grit and hand sanded. But there's something beautiful about the hatch mark of the grinder. It's almost like a gestural drawing or uh, a graphite drawing.
0: Well, it's because, because you, the parts, the flat surfaces that you do would be, going, would be ground in a different pattern like sure. i seen when I so you end up so if you're if i would imagine if you're if you're flats for the lack of a better word are the, the satin finish is going from the heel to the tip and then your bevel is going from the spine to the edge you do get this contrast and transition of these two different patterns that are remarkably that work well together creating that whole union between the 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 flat part of the knife and the bevel. Mm -hmm. Where did you learn how to do that? Illustration. What do you mean
1: illustration? It's really a drawing technique. Um, Directional lines and changing the directional lines can show um, a depth of field, can push things back into space and bring things forward in space on a two-dimensional level. And I'm just applying that to a three-dimensional sense. Um, Now also, I should add too, though, that the way that you process the steel is indicative of how it looks in the end too, because I grind perpendicular to a two by 72 belt grinder. um, That's why the grind lines follow down. You know, some people you can use the grinder many different ways. You can grind that primary bevel and have the direction of the grind go with the profile of the blade. It's a lot harder because of the tool, but really that aesthetic is an indicator of what tool was used to make it really.
0: Well, you know, that is, you, when you say that, I think about, like, sometimes I notice that, you know, with the kind of more tactical ta- tantos that you do, there's a plunge line. Yeah. And then some of them have almost, like, that radial plunge line. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's what it's called, but it, it it looks like it maybe was hit on a, on a disc sider, which I know it wasn't, but it doesn't have a crisp plunge line, but it has, like, a rounded plunge line. No, a big and swooping do, plunge big slooping plunge on your uh, persian daggers and your oni knives mm-hmm. you have that style and i f- i find that to be i i'm interested to think that you make a lot of decisions based on your history as an artist
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of it for sure is based in, or founded in that um another thing too is just learning the tools that you have at your disposal um in art in sculptural art and three-dimensional art texture, especially ceramics, texture is a huge thing. So when I was a a sculptural artist, I had, I made myself and used a whole host of different tools to create different surfaces, you know, to create real hair. Um, Ceramics in itself is beautiful because you can make ceramics look like any other material, but in the sense of that, it requires you to do a lot of research in mark making um, what does this look like in clay? You know, do, is this going to produce something that the result is going to be pleasing for me or get me to that hyper-realism point or whatever goal you have? Um, it's really just like finding another tool that gets you to that goal. Kind of like what you said about your uh, experience with art. It wasn't about what you were using. It was about whatever means you could use to get to that message at the end or that finish mm. thing. Uh, in many, In many respects, it's the same thing. It's just, there's a, maybe there's more information preceding that choice, maybe.
0: I like the fact that you're, Jap- I don't know if if it's, I don't know what you would prefer. If I referred to them as Japanese style knives and swords, or, I don't know what the correct and the respectful way to refer to your work is. Uh, I'm saying this with like with real sincerity here. Mm -hmm. But like the tantos that you do, the, the swords that you do, I don't know the names of the, I, I, you know, and this episode I said, tanto, tanto, tanto. I don't, I I don't (laughs) know the correct pronunciation. I've said that. Can't twist knife. Whatever, whatever it is. (laughs) I don't have no idea. But what I, what I, what I love is, is I feel like you have this real confluence between respecting the tradition that you've learned to make this with and creating your own style that's very, very Chris Adelhart. Like, it's parionized. When I say pe- people, people know you as knives. I don't know if they even know that your name is Chris Adelhart. I, I love that, of, though. Part of the reason why you're a total wraith. Yes. <laughs> like, Noah has no idea. But, like, you've, you've really been able to straddle, straddle both worlds of, of traditional and respectful, but also have your own style as well. And I'm, I'm interested in how you feel about that.
1: I think part of that um, outcome for me is that I'm an academically trained artist, and really the more schooling you have in art that you learn, that art in itself is just reorganizing information that's already out there into a more you-specific sense or something that is more identifiable to you. so, with knife making too, like I do have a lot of traditional influence. I love traditional Japanese work. I love traditional european blades um Scandinavian blades, Persian knives especially um there's a lot of different crossovers in all those different uh disciplines of uh blade making. but there are specific aesthetics in each of them that really kind of jumped out at me and i and because I have experience with um those different cultural references I try to tap into them as much as I can Um, I wouldn't call my work traditional in any sense um, but it's definitely inspired by traditional work uh, using modern or contemporary tools and perspectives
0: how do you this is the problem I have
1: being an art major being working an artist
0: and now being a knife maker it's hard for me to I would imagine it's hard for you I have no idea you, as a sculptor you're making your own work as a ceramicist you're you're creating your style as a sculptor and then when you start to use these influences and they're close. i mean i'm not an i'm not a scholar obviously I don't know but when I see your work there's there's a level of of homage to tradition based on this based on the skill level as well that I, how does it work when the ego of an artist but also you're heavily You're heavily using this kind of this traditional parts, the traditional looks. How do you kind of hold the two together? Does that make sense? Yeah, I kind of get what you're saying. Because let me give you an example. When I make sculpture, I really wanted it to be something that was like uniquely my stuff. And it wasn't, didn't look like, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't based on a style. I wasn't doing these paintings that were you know this that fallen into everything else they were sculptures they were meant to be you know evolutions upon themselves to the point where they were mine to the point where i don't even call them sculptures anymore i would just call them lures or whatever and they just kind of lived within this confine of something that i made that was mine and then when i hopped into making knives they are western chef knife japanese inspired k-tip boning knife oyster knife the, the you you do have i do separate myself out between the two because there is this level of tradition of well the knife has to look a certain be a certain way in order for it to work right p- to uh, compared to the un you know controlled id that's just making something that's completely you know vanity and useless to a certain degree how do you kind of how do you kind of compartmentalize both those things
1: well i think for me um Function is pretty much at the top of my list. Like I want to make sure what I'm creating is applicable in some sense, but then you have certain knife models that I do where it's a little bit more extravagant. Like you mentioned the Ani design, um, you know, not really a practical knife by any sense of the term, but still just like me exploring and being able to enjoy a little bit of artistic freedom. Um, but that's probably one of the main reasons why i love the japanese historical aesthetic because there's so much art embedded into that like if you look at the way that they personalize the suba or the guard the manuki um all the little different parts i'll spare you the terminology no
0: no no, i think i'm catching on go ahead But all the different
1: facets of that I'll never learn otherwise.
0: I'll never learn. If you don't tell me, I'll I'll just call it the fucking thing.
1: (laughs) Well, they all had function, too. I mean, um, and we're talking about a tool that was cultivated over thousands of years of trial and error. And you can go back and you can see how it evolved through the years. Uh, Aesthetically, it changed drastically. Um, materials changed drastically, how they were used. And those were really kind of indicative of the time period and what the people needed to do um, or how they, who they were fighting against. But if you look really into the culture around it, there's a lot of symbolism in the imagery that is used in the tools. Like when you see uh, different animals... Um, for different uh, parts of the ornamental aspect of the blade you 're not it 's not arbitrary by any means there 's a lot of intent in all of that, um, but that 's still art and in that traditional martial arts culture art was seen as just as important as the martial aspect of things. There's this idea of the scholar warrior and he was not only a swordsman but he was a poet, Um, he was an archer, he was a diplomat, he was a businessman, he was all these things wrapped into one um, which is also the idea of Kung Fu which is a Chinese philosophy where you have this idea about being understanding that there's a right and wrong way to do things and then trying to develop the aptitude for recognizing the difference between those and they just applied it to everything in their life not just weapon making, not just pouring a, a cup of tea you know, it was integrated into everything that they did and that's really what I appreciate the most about it too, is that in all those little facets of necessity they put a fingerprint mm. and what's more what what's a better definition for art than that
0: there I agree with you what I do love is I do love the idea of these little I guess they're talismans almost you know it seems as though mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. those little parts now that I'm assuming I'm assuming and this is a don't, don't assume Jeff but the little guy that you stick in between the wrap yeah, you know, you, get, you do a little dude, or I'm not saying a dude a little thing. <laughs> I'm being it real, no, I get Chris, it, I get
1: it, I get it. What is that? That's called the manuki. That's the manuki. Yeah. All right,
0: you gotta. It's almost like this little ta- This little talisman mm-hmm. that goes inside underneath the Edo wrap. Mm-hmm. What do those normally refer to? What what is what is the per what is the why what what's going on with those little guys?
1: So there's lots of different interpretation for the true necessity of a Manuki. Um, One of the most common opinions and the one that I use the most is the functionality of it in terms of knowing where the edge of your blade is. If you wrap it and it's on the right side of your handle, every time you grab that knife and you feel that Manuki, you don't have to look at it. You feel it in the palm of your hand. You know that your edge is facing forward. So when you're in a fight and you're not looking at your sword and you grab your sword, you know what end to cut your opponent with.
0: Fucking a! I never <laughs> knew that. I thought it was just like a little fucking dude that was like a, it was like a little charm like you put on your keychain, you know, like a little bit of a. Well, today I it is. I had no idea. <laughs> unless Mind you cut blown.
1: someone, unless you have the intent of cutting someone, it is just a aesthetic, or it covers your pin, you know, that holds your your handle together.
0: Oh, so it's so. It it swells that it swells that mm-hmm. wrap out a little bit, and that's to tell you which direction your knife is in your hand.
1: Yeah. That's why I put it on. You know, you know the difference between the face of the blade and the back side of the blade. Tell me. Okay, so if you're right-handed, which right. most warriors are, the face of your blade is edge down. It's the fa- it's the side of the blade that you can see. So the so, right side. Yeah, you know, it's the right. Well, depends on how you look at it. But I put all of my Manuki on the opposite side because I'm right-handed. So when you hold that knife, that Manuki creates that swell in the palm of your hand, like we were talking about. Some people prefer it so that their fingertips touch that Manuki.
0: So the idea would be is the Manuki would be in your, in your dominant hand in your palm. So if I'm right-handed,
1: the Manuki would be on the right side. For me, that's the way I, that I do it, yeah. I'll
0: tell you what, you know what, I was talking, I don't know who I was talking to. You know, some people put their, their touch marks on the left side. Yeah. And I was, I was. my opinion, my wife and I were talking about it. I know, she, wasn't, she wasn't really interested. I don't know why we even talked about it, because she don't want to hear any more about
1: <laughs> knife making anyway. You talked at her about it? Oh, made... uh, yeah.
0: No, I don't know. We were talking about, I don't know, we were talking about, oh, I'll tell you why. You got, my One of my knives was recently in a, a Jacques Pepin video, and I was, and she said to me, it's really smart that you put your logo on that side. Mm-hmm. It would put it on the right side. And I said, well, it's, it's not, it wasn't arbitrary. I know a lot of knife makers put their shit on the left side. But my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, always go on your right side. Like always, when it was the first day of school, he would always say to me, always step into the school with your right foot, your right foot first. And I would say it's to my kid, and I would say that to I you know, say to her. You know, you basically like you know, it's it's like a it's like a talisman, it's like a superstition or it's like a you know, just good things. Start on your right foot and then I started to I started to do that. I thought, Well, listen, why don't we just make the the right side because it's just like, you know, but then I started to realize that when chefs put their knife down, if they're right handed, mm-hmm. they're naturally gonna put it down so the right face is facing up anyway. And I've gotten plenty I've gotten a nice TV and, and video like flyovers of the touch mark for that reason, which has been really awesome.
1: Yeah, it's smart. So, it's
0: smart. But um but it's you know, look, it's it's one of those things that I, I would never have known. I would never have known and um I, I've, I'm fascinated with it. And let's just kind of go into the Onis, the o- your Oni work.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Those those knives seem m- far more stylized. I don't know if it's based off of something that's real or what is, or something that's existed in, or it's something that came out of your own mind. Can you kind of talk about what those are all about?
1: Well, it was really kind of like a combination of two other knives that I was making at the time. I was making um, a, a small Persian style knife that is technically the same profile as the Ani except for I don't have a recurve in the blade um, and then I was applying the idea of throwing a compound grind in there and using um, a recurve for hmm. the plunge um, now it doesn't really necessarily serve a, a direct purpose but it is kind of a martial arts or defense knife um, it's kind of, you can hold it like a karambit style knife and trap with it and it's very effective in that respect um but it 's not a functional knife in any other respect other than a self defense knife, um, but the way that I developed that grind was kind of kind of by trial and error. you know I was doing a lot of experimenting with swoop grinds if you look at my old some of my older knives, like the Drake or the dirge, um, which i don 't really make too much of anymore, but I was practicing this really exaggerated drawn out swoop grind, um, and that 's not that difficult to achieve. You see a lot of makers do that. But I really wanted to combine different types of angles together. And um, one of the main reasons that the Ani came about was me experimenting with um, platenless grinding or slack grinding. And I Hmm. was um, attempting to figure out a real easy way to achieve my swoop grind um, without having a platen there. And uh, so it's actually a convex grind in that recurve on the Ani, and then it's a flat grind on the uh, upswept part. Um, And it creates that nice connecting line that has a slight arc to it.
0: But there is this fantasy quality to it. Like, it seems to me, like, I don't don't know enough about those kinds of knives. to. to, It it feels like it's a total departure from these traditional style knives that you do. I love the fact that I almost feel like when I look at your feed you get, like, bumps of both. Like, the kind of more traditional-inspired stuff and then kind of, like, the Persian daggers and the Anis. I just, I love that you you play, you have this duality in terms of these different styles.
1: And part of that, too, is me paying homage to my uh, historical influences, but then also, like, I, I mean, I love Lord of the Rings, man, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and we've talked about I that. I think I
0: used to call you Legolas or whatever Yeah, you did, yeah. yeah. Call you Lego Legoless? What was his name? Something like that. I mean, I could never get <laughs> listen. I I hate to say it. I could never get into it. No, it's never, not for I,
1: everybody. But you know, my mom I'm read full, me the Hobbit when I was a baby, so it was pretty ingrained in my childhood.
0: Wow, that's a pretty that's that's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. So so was, yeah, I mean, in, th- in a broader
1: I mean, sense, fantasy has definitely been like an influence in some of my decisions. Um, but that's me also just having a little bit of fun with what i'm doing too.
0: Yeah. And then the Persian daggers. You, where did what, I like the fact that you're kind of like taking from history or taking from culture, not taking. You're using historical things and you're kind of you know making your interpretation of them. What what was your connection with the, the Persian daggers?
1: Um i just always wanted to make a dagger, you know. And it was like a mini longsword. Um, so there's no real like deep catalyst for me to make uh, any of those daggers. Other than I really like like I don't know exactly what you mean by Persian dagger. Um, but I, in, I
0: thought that was what you were referring to them as.
1: Like the swoopy upswept knives, is that what you're talking
0: about? I, I think so. I thought I saw on your on your I thought I saw on your feed that you referred to them as Persian daggers. I might My, be wrong.
1: Technically, I mean, I guess you could, because I do a false edge on the swedge, but I do grind it to zero edge thickness, so it's pretty fucking sharp. Hmm. Um, But I just, there's something about that swoopiness of the Persian style that reminds me a lot of the elves in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You love it. It's very organic, you know? I mean, I don't give a shit about elves. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fine. I, I don't,
0: I wouldn't give a shit about them either.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But no, I do like a lot of the, it's a very, his style, the style of the, the Elvish style is very like Art Nouveau, very organic, ah. very um, natural, like a lot of vines. Um, and there is something to, to be said about that in terms of blade design too, because I take a lot of inv- uh, inspiration from things outside of just knife making like architecture, nature, um, furniture design, especially, but all things that the human body uses and we don't have a straight line on our body. So the idea of creating a tool that's perfectly straight is, um, it's a little confusing to me. Um, whereas something that would be more applicable to like the shape of a hand would have no straight line to it whatsoever.
0: Well, you do you do you do feel that with especially your Ani knives, mm-hmm. like there is a much more. I would think you know I, when I was when I was interviewing Salem Straub, mm-hmm. I've listened to something. You know, I'd listened to a lot of his influences, and a lot of it was Art Nouveau. Yeah, and Art Nouveau, and the difference between Art Deco and Art Nouveau is only like a few years, and the complexity of the lines. Mm-hmm. Art Nouveau is much more the contrasting of. The swooping, very bold, big bellied vines versus Art Deco, which is a little bit more uh, contrast between nature and straight lines. But there's much more angularity to, to mm-hmm. do it. And I, I just I find that especially with artists and knife makers, Art Deco and Art Nouveau is so important because it's a contrast between straight lines and round line and in like circles and and shapes like that, which is you were just said. And and that when I think about the ani style knife where you know it, it just make there's a lot of the 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 profile has a lot of turns and it has a lot of shapes and it has a lot of plunging and a lot of swooping and i do like the fact that you're very uh in tune with that
1: yeah and um some of that influence definitely comes from looking at things outside of uh humanity for lack of a Hmm. better way of saying it, like I I posted every now and then about how I use feathers to understand blade geometry. Um, And there's been a lot of different instances where I've been able to find things like that, like the shape of a gull's flight wing. It's just this beautiful knife when you look at it. Down to the proportion of How long the I'm not sure what the little featherets Are called on each side of the blade of a a feather Which you call a blade too, by the way Um, But it's just the perfect proportion For a a knife And uh, I mean Even in its function, the way that it cuts through the air And it's designed to um, Literally cut Hmm. I don't know, I find a lot of Relativism in the things around me Like that
0: So what's next for you? I, I I know you do very I don't I know I don't know I'm just assuming you don't do a lot of culinary stuff, which you don't do a lot of culinary stuff, which Mm-mm. I'm happy about. Yeah, you told me not
1: to years ago. I didn't I didn't tell you not to.
0: <laughs> I told you if you start doing belt grind, if you start getting into the culinary knife game, well I gotta we all gotta we all gotta get worried because you know you're gonna you're gonna have that belt finished chef knife grind down super fast.
1: Oh, that's a nightmare! I don't want to visit, though.
0: I don't blame you. It's hard to do a you.
1: belt finish on a two-inch-wide blade that is paper thin.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can
1: only imagine.
0: Yeah, because I would just when I picture you grinding your—that's the thing. It's like when you have a lot of material behind it, like you know, like a you know, three-sixteenth-inch uh, spine. You mm-hmm. get a little bit more. I guess I would imagine you're probably a little bit more. Relaxed than when yeah. you have like a razor blade that you're like, I gotta dump this in the water right now or <laughs> pretty soon. So you're getting ready to move in June, June or July. June, middle of
1: June, I'll be gone.
0: Do you have a Do you have a, a space all squared away?
1: Yeah, I got a shop. Uh, I'll be sharing a shop with Andrea, um, but I got my a little apartment above the shop, which is great. Um, but yeah, everything's pretty much in place. I'm just. I got some weddings to go to this summer. Um, my brother's getting married. And just moving across the country, there's a lot of logistics involved. So I'm yeah. just taking care of all that shit before I actually do the move.
0: And what, tell, us, tell us now, now that we know. We know that you're going out there, you're going to be doing collaborations with the, distro- with the destroyer. <laughs> I want to know, I want to know, I want to give us a hint. What kind of collaborations will you guys be doing?
1: Well, I'm going to be getting into a lot of casting, uh, a lot of casting of parts, um, adding some sculptural elements to my work, more sculptural elements to my work, combining some sculptu- sculptural elements of her work with the idea of knives, because I know she's more or less gearing towards moving to- uh, towards sculpture more. Um, but just trying to combining those two perspectives. Like you said earlier... In this field, specifically craftsman, but more specifically knife maker, it is kind of a isolate, isolation rich environment. You know, like all your discoveries are happening within this little vacuum you call a knife shop. Um, and the more opportunities you can get to work with other artists and incorporate their perspective, the, it's only gonna improve your work and lead you down directions that you may not have gone before. Um, and me coming from an academic sense, an academic art school sense, I'm really looking forward to being around more people with that same artistic background to draw from. And you don't have to deal with the harsh winters of Pennsylvania. Oh, I will not miss the winters. Oh, my God. I will not miss the winters.
0: Now, I'm going to ask you a tough question now, only Uh-oh. because I've had the, this experience. Is it tough to be in a relationship with an, another person doing similar and I say similar I'm saying sculptural stuff is it hard to be in a relationship because I will say it is I will say it is because it was
1: for me it's hard to be in a relationship with anyone in general I think you
0: look that was a good answer
1: I think that there is always going to be a struggle in some sense Um, one thing to keep in mind too as an artist or as a craftsman is the fact that especially in knife making like it's an oversaturated market? I have fifty thousand followers online, and I think forty thousand of them are knife makers um, but it's not as competitive as you think because there's so many people out there to draw from i don't think you're ever going to really run into too much competition until you get into the realm of plagiarism, um, which we don't have to really get into but In terms of a relationship, I mean, yeah, it's going to be hard in that respect. But also, it will have the same amount of pros and cons that any other situation would have. That's a good
0: answer. Love will will conquer all. I just know that I'm friendly now with my first girlfriend from college. Mm -hmm. We were both art majors. We were both sculpture majors and there was definitely I felt the sense we're, we've, we're friends now we're friendly now she's terrific terrific but at the time there was these moments I remember specifically my art teacher saying to her my our sculpture teacher saying to her and I thought it was a backhanded comment on his part I think it was inappropriate but he said that I was too much of an influence on her hmm. and she started to do stuff that was a little bit closer to what I was doing and he he said it in a way that it was like... I felt like there was this... It became this degree of... There was a bit of a competition. It's turned into a competition. And that was a really kind of a difficult part of our relationship because we were both creative. We were both looking for... I mean, it was art school, so it wasn't really didn't really matter. But there was definitely this tension I felt. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna even put that on you. I'm wishing you the best of luck in terms of your relationship and what's going on. And I apologize for bringing it up. I just remember. <laughs> I just remember. I'm just glad that my wife is is you know she's we have completely different you know different directions, and it makes it a little bit easier because there's not we're not talking shop together. But mm-hmm. I apologize because that really wasn't my my opinion to to say that.
1: Well, I think one thing to look at, especially in your specific instance, is the time period in which you were in that relationship. That's right. You're talking about a period when you're 20 years old or around that, and you're kind of forming your identity anyway. And when you're that young, who aren't you in competition with? Basically, everyone around you to figure out who you are. I mean, I'm 35. I'm not super old, but I think I've been 35 all my life. So in terms of, like, being able to respect somebody else and cultivate their need to be an individual and grow i don't have any reservation in doing that plus being a teacher too teaches you how to be constructive and helpful to the people around you
0: you are totally ready for texas this is like (laughs) that is the that is a better answer than i could have imagined that's an excellent answer right there you are you are so what's next you're gonna move you're gonna get out there you're going you to have a new climate. You're going to be in a creative area. You're going to be knocking out all sorts of stuff for your... your
1: who, by the way, who are your customers? I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, it's such a varied uh, demographic of people. I get people I love and people who I would never imagine having a conversation with all the time that want to buy my knives. And that's the interesting thing about knife making and maybe art in general is that it reaches people from every demographic. You know, there's everybody that needs... Every, somebody, doesn't matter who they are, they need a knife for something. You know, we can't cut things as a human being. You need something to cut something. So whether you're a baker, uh, a bank teller, or a, a fucking magician, you need a knife for something in your life. So you're always going to have that extreme diverse demographic of customers. Um, and the same thing goes with art, too, because... Art is the language of humanity.
0: What's the weirdest request you've gotten?
1: Oh, I love this question. Okay, so I hope this guy isn't listening. I doubt he would be. But So I had this one local guy come into my shop once, and he's a really nice guy, glassblower guy, really nice guy. Um, But he's like, all right, I want this sword. And uh, it was early in my career when I was just saying yes to everything. And I was like, all right, let's make you this sword, Dan what do you got in mind? And so I don't know if you're familiar with the geography in my area, but I live in Erie, Pennsylvania. And the big attraction to Erie is the peninsula. It gets, it's a national park. It gets more visitors in Yellowstone every year. Um, very small, but very iconic for my area. And he wanted me to do, and you should Google this later to see what this looks like. He wanted me to do a sword in the profile of the peninsula of Lake Erie. And, uh, it was just. Let me.
0: Ta- I gotta take a.
1: Look. I need to
0: know what this peninsula looks like. Look, it, look right. it up.
1: He wanted the exact topographical pro- uh, profile of the peninsula, and turn turn it into a sword. Erie. I never forget that order. Did you? I never do forget it? how relieved I felt when I knew I could not do it. <laughs> okay,
0: Erie Peninsula. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's like almost like a, it almost looks like a sickle. Am I yeah, wrong? or
1: like a, um, if you held the thin end, it'd be like a lamb chop or something, sort of. <laughs> it
0: looks like <laughs> a lamb chop. That is a strange request.
1: Yeah, it's pretty strange.
0: Because I would think, I would because th- we get very strange requests. Like, mm-hmm. I recently got a request for a very, very specific Rambo style knife. And it's just like, we because we do custom work, we always people just assume well, I'll just make anything. And I, I usually I'll say I don't say no to a lot, but it's just like I need you to make this Rambo knife, but I want it to be a switchblade and I want the saw teeth to have real teeth. And you know, it's just like it's just, it's just this <laughs> nonsense. And it's just like at the point where it's like I can only imagine a guy like you who makes these incredible swords and knives and very like I would imagine that you get my I, I, I that. Erie Pen- Peninsula Knife is sh- is surely not the craziest request you've got.
1: I don't, I mean, off the top of my head, that one was pretty wild. Other than that, it's a lot of, like, video game knives or, right. like, the knife from Dune. People always say that. They want me to make the knife from Dune a lot. um the knife um, from Dune? I, I don't even really knows. know. I'm not going to lie. It's I think it's, it's like a tooth from the worm in the desert of Dune. Um I can't mm-hmm. believe it's like a K mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. But For I get a lot of from... weird like fantasy related requests and oh, it's, um
0: it's pretty pretty not pretty in the ballpark of of what you do. I mean, it's got a lot of similarities to uh yeah, they do like to make them out of teeth, don't they? Yeah. It has a um it has a very it does remind me a little bit of I mean, based on the pictures I'm looking on Google, there is a similarity in style to your uh, oni knife where it mm-hmm. has this kind of like curve this kind of like se- semicircle in the middle and then it kind of draws up it's not that far off to be honest with you that isn't a crazy that isn't a crazy request of you I mean, <laughs> if i were if somebody showed me the do knife i'd be like i bet chris could make that
1: yeah i well i guess i could try <laughs>
0: <laughs> i don't know man i that's not crazy you don't get crazy requests we get crazy
1: requests like what's your cra- totally. craziest request
0: I mean, literally every week I get a message saying this guy wants you to make him the Rambo knife, but then he wants to change it. I had a guy who wanted a knife to bring on a job site, a knife that he could use to hammer and nails that he could use as a crowbar that he could slice open boxes with the one that, and he just go on and on and on. And I want the tip to be able to be, uh, he wants a Swiss army knife, a fill. No, but he wanted it to be the size of like a machete. And he wanted it to be like the tip's going to be uh, a flathead screwdriver, but maybe I might need a uh, a Phillips head screwdriver. It's mm. just like what, what kind of what do, you, what do you if you go to a job site, a construction site, and you're hammering nails in with a knife, they're going to throw you off the job site.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I get they stuff would. like
0: that. So I, I get stuff like that, and then um, can you make me a knife out of stone, or can you make me a switchblade? Oh. But I want the and it's just like. What is going on? And I'm just imagining that you, you, you've you
1: gotten tame requests. I do get a lot of requests for folding knives, um, which is really strange because I've never built a folding knife. But I think what you're talking about and kind of what I'm about to say is the reason behind that is that most people who are ordering knives now don't have a lot of knowledge about what a knife is, especially that guy who wants to do all the things with one tool. I think that's a pretty common goal in our time to have one thing that does everything, but we know, you and I both know that that's just not how things really work, especially when it comes to steel.
0: There's a lot of people who were th- they think that they're going to reinvent the wheel, right? And it's one of those things that's just like it just it if it, it some of these people are so stupid. <laughs> they think they're going to reinvent the wheel, but there's so many smarter people who haven't been able to figure that out, too. You mm-hmm. know, I had one cook who wanted a knife that he was a paring knife that was also a screwdriver. Uh, the, everyone wants a screwdriver at the tip. What?
1: I'm telling you, dude. People Why? seem
0: to want to do, like, like especially in the kitchen. They want to be able to, like, open cans. When you're and,
1: coring an apple, when do you need to use a sc- screwdriver? I'm
0: telling you, dude. It's just like you have no... I mean, it's like, it, the funny thing is when I ha- used to have... I used to love to carry a leather man because I used to think oh, I'm gonna need it all the time. Yeah. But when I was in my home, I wouldn't need it. And when I was in my shop, I wouldn't need it. And then when I go between my home and my shop, I wouldn't need it. So what am I carrying <laughs> it around for? Yeah. In my shop, I don't need a fucking Swiss Army knife or like this thing. and I'm and I'm just I talk to these people and they're just like, I really want it to look like this and I really wanted you to embed this into the steel and I want you and I'm always just like, but you know I don't do that. Have you seen what I've done and I've never done that before. I don't make switch blades. Why are you asking me for this?
1: And I think that's just another example of their limited amount of knowledge. And no hate towards somebody who doesn't know anything or know better, but I think a lot of that comes from that lack of understanding.
0: Well, we also know that the people who have a lack of understanding also have a lack of pricing and a lack of money.
1: Yeah, the absolutely. craziest
0: things are always the people. The people. Can you make this knife out of A two? And I want it to have the shark skin. This, and I want it to have <laughs> like a a Batmobile on the side or Bat Batarang on the side. It's just like, oh, wait a second. Well, I have to pay. Well, I have to pay it too. And there's 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 a there's a lack of. I think that people are bored at home.
1: I, I think, think that's what it home. is. Yeah, that's a rate. That's probably half of it is just boredom and free time.
0: So what's next for you, Chris Adelhart, Pariah Knives? What's next for you? Well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do?
1: I really want to keep moving in the direction where I'm bridging my sculptural work with my uh, functional knife work. Um, it's something like I said earlier in the podcast. My sculptural work I haven't done in quite a bit of time, uh, and I've been out of college now for 12 years. Um, and it's something that I miss. I miss that language in a small a small amount, um, but I just haven't had the right perspective in how to incorporate what I want to say with my sculptural work and apply it to knife making. Um, So really my goal in the future is to be able to bridge those two disciplines and try to integrate them in one another more, whether that means making sculptural work that includes knives or making knives that has more of a sculptural uh, elements to it. I wish you the best of luck. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. (laughs) I wish you the
0: best of luck, and I really hope that this move isn't too stressful for you.
1: Oh, I'm not even stressed about it. The hardest part about it would be transporting my small cat, but uh, we go on rides all the time now, so she's getting pretty comfortable with it. You have to move
0: your whole shop. I mean, how are you going to move the whole shop and do... You have to, like, have to... They're going to be setting up the new shop,
1: and there's going to be a a big lag. It's going to be stressful. It is. I mean, um... I I like to think ahead in my life too. So I've been planning for this. Um, All it is, all it really is going to require is a big ass U-Haul and a week of my time. Um, That's the one thing that's great about being an entrepreneur and working for yourself is wherever you go. Well, it's specifically knife making Uh, wherever you go, you have your work with you. So me changing my scenery in the background, other than having no sales tax in Texas, which is going to be a nice change. Um,
0: is there no... So if you charge someone in New York, you don't have to pay
1: sales tax? You don't have to charge them sales tax? I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, you got well, yeah. well, to be... Yeah, well, i have talk to my lawyer to... about all that. Ugh. But sales also get a lawyer sales. too. That's my only bit of advice is get a lawyer. Have a lawyer. S- sales tax is the bane of
0: our existence because there's so many different places that we have to figure out the different taxes. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, ugh.
1: I know. <sighs> Believe me, filing your taxes at the end of the year is something that I dread all year round.
0: Well, I don't dread your, I'm looking forward to hearing you about your voyage because I think it's going to be great. Chris Adelhart, you know him as Pariah Knives, and I'm so glad you came in and our connection held up. Me too. Before we talked, our connection wasn't so great, but it sounds good, everything sounds good. You're a fascinating guy. I still hold you at a very, very hot. You and Will Morrison are my belt- finishing uh, guys I look to, who are like just above and beyond. I, I'm inspired by your work. I'm inspired by your ethic. I'm inspired by how it all works together, because I know you are like this martial artist who's into art and into making swords and working with the swords and martial arts. And I appreciate the romantic style of Chris Adelhart. Thanks, Jeff. Couldn't be happier. I couldn't be happier either, guys. Go follow Chris, Pariah Knives. Go get yourself a little axe wax full blast ten. And next week, I'll just tell you if you we have Justin Morel coming in next week. He, of Morel Metalsmiths. He's a comes from a long line of of blacksmiths. This is it gonna be very interesting? Josh Prince is coming up. And then I think we're going to be doing—I got to work it out—our uh, year and uh, the one-year anniversary of the starting of this podcast. I'm hoping to get uh, Cliff and John in to just have a round, round it up, and then that's it. So, guys, listen to this podcast. Go tell your friends about it. Leave me some reviews. It helps me out. Um, and uh, I hope you have a great weekend or whatever, whatever. Chris, thanks again, man. You're the best. Thanks, Jeff. We'll look forward to talking to you again. I'm with you. The Full Blast podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all natural, food safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax
1: is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go. To AxeWax.us and get yourself some of the
0: most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.